0: nurses, and hypochondriacs, the podcast that brings nurse experts, patients, and hypochondriacs together to discuss hot topics in healthcare. And here is your host, Ercilia Pompilio. If my life wasn't funny, it would just be true, and that is isn't acceptable. That's a quote from the late and great Carrie Fisher, who you might know as Princess Leia, from the Star Wars movies. In this episode of The Nurses and Hypochondriacs, we are going to be laughing through life with my special guest, Johnny Pemberton, and we're going to be talking about his 2023 Hollywood Fringe Festival one-man show called Minnesota Reggae Colostomy Bag. That's right, Johnny made a show about having a colostomy bag and his journey through the healthcare system. This is an episode you won't want to miss. It's super fun. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode was brought to you by Rogue Nurse Media 501c3 and The Well-Written Nurse, empowering nurses and patients to tell their stories. And thank you to uh, John Pepperton. Thanks for coming on uh, the Nurses and Hypochondriacs show.
1: Great to be here. Awesome. How are you? I loved your show at the Fringe. Thank you. I'm glad you uh, liked it. I'm glad you were there. It's really uh, It was uh, fun to have people see it. Uh, it's a show that I've been working on for a pretty long time, but it's changed a lot. So it was nice to have people see it uh, evolve.
0: And it's called Minnesota... Colosomy
1: reggae Colostomy Bag. It's reggae, like
0: reggae colostomy bag, right. So, how did you come about I mean tell us a little bit about yourself and uh how you came about like hey, I'm going to do a show about my colostomy bag cuz that's kind of a tough one.
1: Well, I mean, it's uh it's not just about the colostomy bag. That's just the word I like to put in there cuz it's so it basically I wanted to tell stories about having uh, a bowel disease and I knew if I gave it a that was just a temporary title. I gave it. And I knew if I gave it that title, it would force me to talk about it. I love that. Yeah. That's, it's pretty simple. And I also, I just wanted to do it. I don't know why I can't remember. It was about, it was probably like, uh, the last, the fir- it was the first month of 2020 when I first did the show and I wrote it. And one day I just, um, sat down and blazed through it, just wrote it really fast and just, uh, did my best to try to make it some, I don't know. I just wrote it really fast because I had, I had to, and then I put it up for the first time and it was great. And I had a bunch of friends come to it and uh, then it's, I've done it maybe five times since then or six times since then. So I just been um, evolving it. And obviously there was a big break in there because during COVID I didn't do the show, but uh, yeah, I don't know. There's not, I feel like I, I, someone asked me that recently. I don't really know what to say. I just, I think I just, I don't know. A lot of times things with me are happen really fast and I blaze through them at the, the beginning. I just uh, go for it and uh, see what happens.
0: I think it, it probably just needed to come out, kind of just like how in your show you said, when you go to the bathroom, you just have to take off your pants and go, right?
1: Or well, <laughs> instead of shitting your pants. <laughs> shitting. Don't shit your pants. Because there's no reason to shit your pants.
0: No. So one of the things that I totally liked about your show was mm-hmm. how you were taking ASCOL, which is a, a common medication yeah. mm-hmm. that you take. And as right. a child, like how old were you? And you told your doctor, by the way, my Ascol's not working. And he's like, how do you know that? And you're like, because I can see it in my poop.
1: Yep. <laughs> I could read it. I could read the words on the pill that were in the toilet. So it wasn't getting absorbed, which is, you know, something where you think that a, a bowel medication would get absorbed. Of all the things it has to do, that's one of the most important things it has to do, and it wasn't doing it.
0: Another thing I liked about your show is how knowledgeable you were, and I guess you have to be of all the medications you were on.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I've always had kind of a – I mean, I grew up in Rochester, Minnesota, which is probably the uh, – the, has the most ph- physicians per capita of any place in the world, possibly. Really? I think so because it's the home of the Mayo Clinic. Okay. And my dad was a surgeon there. Oh wow. And uh, pretty much and his dad was also a surgeon there and so was his dad. So that's uh three generations of of surgeons at the same place. And also, you know, I grew up around it too cuz all my friends' dads and moms were in the medical industry. It was just how it was. It wasn't something where just yeah, you know, it's just very, it's not a huge town, but it's not a very big town either. I mean, it's just so everyone you know for the most part is working in Mayo except for a few exceptions and they all live by each other. And so everyone was a doctor. So I just kind of grew up around it. I really, I also wanted to be a doctor for a long time, really did. And then I realized I didn't. And, uh, you know, now I'm here.
0: That's awesome. So, so how did you make, so everybody wanted you to be a doctor and all of a sudden you went to Hollywood.
1: No one wanted me to be a doctor. That's the thing I, oh, really? yeah, no, there was never any pressure for me to be um, a doctor or be a surgeon. I mean, I obviously there was some pressure in the sense where it was like, I'm the first son, my, my name, John Dejan Pemberton comes from my grandfather, I think from my grandfather who was the second and he was a surgeon at, uh, before me. So there was like pressure in that sense, but no one was, I was never pressured by my parents whatsoever to do, to do that. I don't think it would have worked anyways, because I've always been kind of willful and determined to do what I wanted to do. And so I think if anyone had tried to make me do something, I would have done the opposite. And I think maybe they might have known that. So they didn't push me. And uh, I don't know. I just wanted from an early, pretty young age, I wanted to do, to work in film. And I just uh, wanted to do comedy and work in film. So that's just what I started doing. At some point, it becomes too late to do something else. Because, I mean, that's not totally true. But I mean, like, uh, you're kind of like priced in, as they say in poker, where You've put enough chips in for the hand, so you might as well play your hand and see what happens instead of pulling out.
0: True. I think yeah. you're just on the beginning of your journey, you know, because watching your show, I was like, God, this is so educational. You could do so much with this.
1: You yeah, know. I, I like that aspect. I do like the educational aspect of it. For me, it's really interesting. And I, I also I I personally find science stuff very, very compelling. And I think people who would shy away from it are they're just wrong. <laughs>
0: Yeah, like I sent you that whole. They're having like a GI conference at Scripps, and like you should contact these people.
1: Right, actually, you know? my dad is my my dad's spoken there a couple times actually. Which oh I my gosh, know. you have an in? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. It's a different different end of the conference, though. I don't know. That's a, another thing It might be kind of weird for me to be a part of that when it's something where I don't because I I know the other side so well. I understand the life of a doctor so well mm-hmm. that. For me, sometimes it feels weird to talk about certain aspects of it because it's like, um, yeah, because the patients obviously feel one way about medicine and doctors feel a different way. And a lot of times they're at odds and I can see both perspectives very clearly.
0: But it's almost like you could be a professional patient because I had Dominic Quagliotti on my show. So he has had cystic fibrosis, you know, Mm -hmm. his whole entire life.
1: Yeah, that's a big one.
0: And so he has become this professional patient. He's an artist. So he does a lot of, um, you know, um, like one person show type things with his art. What is it called? Performance art. There you go. So he does a lot of performance art and he performs in front of medical students and stuff, in front of physicians on the patient's perspective of what goes on. Cause that is so important, you know? It is, it is really important. And, and, and so you, if you look at it through that aspect, I mean, I can connect you with Dominic mm-hmm. as well. Um, and because he he's such a great guy and he does mentor people through uh, the process and stuff. But, um, you know, it is a way to educate people. It is all also a great way to make money and get your show out there as well. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, because I seeing it through. Cause I was like, God, he's so good.
1: You know, well, I'm doing it and, a long time.
0: And I learned, yeah. And I, I learned so much, you know, and stuff. I also liked how you were going over how you had to go to your parents all of a sudden made the decision to send you to Catholic school when you were right. happy in public school. Yeah. And the biggest thing was there were bathrooms with no doors, toilets yep. with no doors or stalls, yeah. right?
1: Toilet stalls with no doors. Yeah, that was pretty, uh, pretty interesting to see that uh, as a seventh grader.
0: I mean, that whole, it was just so funny how you were like talking about or in the character of the other teachers going to the bathroom and talking to you. Right. You're going to the bathroom.
1: Yeah, that's something that's always been funny to me. For dinner yeah i mean that that's probably a little bit creative license i it's hard for me to remember exactly what was said it was probably nothing really interesting or worth remembering but that's sort of the minnesota the minnesota style is people uh either oversharing or not sharing at all
0: yeah so then how old were you when you got your colostomy bag and and they made that decision for you with the 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 whole french canadian buick Levin right was surgeon
1: yeah i I mean uh when i say this thing about surgeons being sociopaths it's more like that's just a tendency they all have i think and i know that from i i I think most surgeons would admit to that because it's just the kind of profession where it lends itself to that because you kind of have to be detached enough to do your job well
0: yeah you're cutting up people all day long it's pretty intense it's
1: very intense uh my particular surgeon i would say he was uh very very low On the sociopathic scale, for real. He was a wonderful (laughs) surgeon, great man. I went to school with his daughter. Uh, But I was, when I had the first surgery, I think I was 19 years old when I had that, when I had a colostomy bag for about three months. Yeah.
0: And that's such a pivotal age for a boy or a young man growing Mm -hmm. up, because that's like, your body is shifting into manhood, you know, right. you're probably starting to date. There's the body image thing. And how do you tell like, well, oh, by the way, I have a colostomy bag.
1: <laughs> well, that wasn't an issue at the time. I wasn't about to try to date anyone at all when I had a colostomy bag. Uh, so I was living with my parents then, recovering between surgeries. So that's when I had the colostomy bag. But there are people who live with them. There's actually this, uh, pretty well known sailor on YouTube. He makes these, he does these epic one person sailing journeys. And he has had the same surgery as me. I had him on my podcast a little while ago. And he, um, he says how he does, he prefers to have the ostomy bag. He prefers the colostomy bag to the other way around because he's had, I've, I've been extremely lucky. I only realized this a few years ago, how incredibly lucky I've been, how successful my surgery has been. It's been almost 20 years now. And it's something where the complications I've had with it are just so, so small. There are people who have had this surgery who it never, they never really recover and they wanna go back to having the colostomy bag because there's just so many complications with the J-pouch or whatever type of allelial, uh setup they have.
0: You did such a great illustration about the j pouch too. And well, and that's why I was like, wow, he's really good.
1: Well, I mean, you know, I know I, I think about about
0: it. the J patches. It, it's been a while. Um, I don't, I, I don't work in the hospital. I work in clinics. Mm-hmm. So I mostly deal with well children. Right. And, um, I very, very rarely get a kid with that has a colostomy bag or that has had that surgery. But at one point I did work at children's hospital of Los Angeles and I did see kids who were getting a j-pad i was working in a place called um surgical admitting so i would see all the pre-surgery kids mm-hmm. like everybody under the sun who was getting surgery had to come through my office and so i would see the j the the j pouches being constructed and i was like oh yeah you know <laughs> so it totally yeah. brought me back you know to that which was very interesting so
1: yeah, it's a and then the pain meds
0: thing. after in the post-op with your anesthesiologist, you know? <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. I got to be very familiar with pain medication. Uh, it's something that, I mean, it's something I have told to me, I'm trying to think who told me, but someone was like, if you want to get better fast, don't take your pain meds. Don't take as little as you possibly can. And no one ever says that at all. No one ever tells people that their their pain is normal and it's okay to be in pain, but you should take as little of them as you possibly can because you're going to heal much faster if you do, and that's what got me to stop taking them as much.
0: That's kind of a, a very interesting perspective too. Yeah,
1: I mean it's it's, it's very true. I found it to be the case multiple times because, like, when you're in pain to some if you can, if you're not, if you're in pain enough, well, you can't sleep. That's one thing. But if you have pain that is, you're just feeling the pain. I don't think it's a bad thing to feel that. Like we have this idea you have to have a pain for your life and i think that's kind of like i think it's incorrect and it kind of goes against the just the very nature of the human body's ability to deal with its own pain
0: and i also believe you know you bring up a good point because you can feel the pain and be like okay where is this leading me what is going on here mm-hmm. you know i just did a thing where i went to maxicali to get a, a tooth removed and, and to get an implant i still have to get my implant put in so the this, the oral surgeon did not use any anesthesia and I don't like to be put out. So he just used local, right? Okay. And so what I was doing, I had learned this CIA technique. I know this seems crazy. I think but, I've heard I, about this. But yeah. The numbers. So it's these certain numbers that you kind of go into this meditative state and you keep repeating these numbers, right? Wow. So the guy also was playing a... Um, uh, uh, I forget what he was playing in the background because all the girls were all dancing and it was like i was like in some reality show or something wow. uh you know it was very surreal like he was dancing and singing the song and um and, and the assistants were all dancing a lupa that's what they were all okay dancing
1: to. during your operation
0: <laughs> during my my extraction yes wow. and, and i was numbed up and i was like all right i'm just gonna you know put myself under uh, this hypnotic trance with these numbers, and I did, and I did not feel pain. I mean, yeah, oh. he numbed it, but and he pulled out the tooth, and I could hear stuff. Oh, I don't like, but, hearing stuff. <laughs> yeah, but um, I was just really kept going with the numbers, and I didn't feel the pain. And even afterwards, you know, because he gave me pain meds to mm-hmm. take home with me, and I could, you know, I, I. I use them a little bit but not very much cuz then I was just like oh I feel fine and even my friends were like cuz we went to dinner
1: after wow we went to
0: go have tacos at a really nice restaurant and they're like wow you look amazing we thought you would be out of it you know mm-hmm. and I'm like no why and they're like you're going to eat and I'm like I'm going to try their tacos you know
1: have a little bit
0: i'm gonna have a cocktail and something. they're like you can't have a tie is my other friends were nurse practitioners that i went with and they were like you cannot drink alcohol
1: you're on antibiotics you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, not the not the best but we've all done antibiotic. it i think yeah you pour but it directly cool. on the, the wound. what i
0: really love too about your show is that you had to tell this story because it was really causing problems in your life hmm so can yeah, you I talk about so. that a guess so.
1: Well, I feel like it was something where uh, it was all stuff I hadn't really shared before, and I thought, and I realized that by not sharing it, it was making it worse and not better. The idea of uh, of hiding something about you is not really uh, it's not a good way to live. It's not like a good sustainable way to live is to have a huge aspect of your life, not the entire aspect, but a, a part of you who ma- that makes you yourself and your personality to. To have that not be um to be have have that be something you're scared to share is not a uh for me if, stop being a sustainable way to live because i think it's it's um i mean it's complicated i mean that's par- partially what the show is about is trying to explain this and it's still it's it's hard to explain, but essentially it's just about living the truth of your life and being open about who you are and not being ashamed of it.
0: I think that's a great perspective. I mean, I've dated so many men and they all seem to have problems and go into substance abuse because they have this crazy story. And so
1: yeah.
0: uh, sometimes they even either after we were dating or while we're still dating, they will share the story with me because they have an interest in writing, you know? So right. I, I sit with them and I teach them like the Amherst method and, which is very non judgmental because it's hard for someone to tell their story, you know? And a lot of times I start with what's in a name, like, tell me about your name and write a story about that. And Mm -hmm. so that's always so interesting in itself. But these guys, it's like, I know with a lot of them, there's something going on with them, but they don't want to say it you know they don't want to talk about it and it's so hard in society because men are not supposed to share their feelings
1: yeah i think it's a mammalianistic i think it's even deeper than just men it's something ingrained in us where we're not supposed to share a weakness because that means it would uh, upset our position in the in society or and like i watched that chimp documentary recently and the the alpha chimp gets injured so badly he he goes away he leaves because he doesn't want to be seen in this state where he's been, he's weakened. So he goes off to die alone and you see animals do this all the time is they want to wow. die alone cause they don't want to be seen in this weak state. And I think that we all have this natural inclination to hide something about ourselves that would make us appear weak because we don't want to stop. Like I think, I think about um, Chadwick Bozeman, how he hid his colon cancer Mm -hmm. because he wanted to keep working, because I think he knew that if he told people about it, they would treat him differently, and they would insist that he can't do the work, even though he knew he could do the work, because he has the ability to do so, mind over matter, but he didn't want to be, um, he didn't want to have to change how his life was, the trajectory of his life, because of the way people treat others with illness, and for me, that was a thing where, I definitely hit it for that reason, because I didn't want to be judged based upon, this thing that was just a part of me, it was not who I am, but it, because it's a bowel disease, it's so, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's very, it's like a loud thing. It's like a, it's a very, um, it's obviously the subject of tons of jokes and stuff. People make fun of it as they should. It's, it's funny. You know, farts are always be funny, They never won't be funny. If they stop being funny, then something's wrong with us. And so that's like that part of the thing. I think it's, it was, for me it was about being in control of something. So if you're in control Of what people know about you, then you feel just slightly a bit more control about your life, because the bowel disease in itself is a disease of control, and the lack of control you have of your bowels is something that most people never experience. They do experience it maybe once in a while, and when they do experience it, it's like this novelty. They're on they're on vacation, they had traveler's diarrhea, and they tell a story about it, and it's this novel thing. Oh, it's so funny! I had to do this when for me that's like almost every day. And I deal with that, but it's not, it's not a big deal to me. That stuff it doesn't really matter to me. It's not a from in my life. It's not a, a pinnacle. It's not a source of focus. It's not something that deters me. It's not something that slows me down at all. I feel like it's totally normal and it's I'm totally fine with it, but to other people who haven't experienced that it could become a thing where kind of create like, like a hitch, uh, like, like it causes this, thing where they can't get past it and i think i was always scared of that and just naturally so and so then i realized that this is like a long circuitous way to answer this question or talk about it but what you're saying with those people you've experienced like men who've they don't don't want to share stuff i think it all comes down to just you're scared to share something because you think that you'll be treated differently and you don't want to be treated differently
0: Right. And that's a great point. I mean, I was having uh, lunch yesterday with a writer friend of mine, and she just had a baby. Mm -hmm. So she had a baby two months ago, and she never stopped working. And she said one of her editors, she goes, Oh, i never told her I was having a baby. You know, I met my dad was in labor, finishing up an article.
1: Okay, well, I want to read and this And went article. to the
0: hospital. And I remember she had posted that and she had told me why, because she mm-hmm. didn't want to, you know, she didn't want to lose her freelance job. She didn't want to be treated differently. You know, Um, she didn't want to have anybody go, oh, well, now you have a baby. You can't be a writer, you know? Yeah. And I go, well, of course you can. not I mean, this is actually the best job ever. You just feed you. you're at home with your baby while you're writing. I mm-hmm. mean, you you pick the baby up when it needs to be picked up feed it, put it on your boob, change the diaper. I mean, and you could still continue writing. It's not like you have to go to a workspace, like, you know, right. and deal with customers or patients or whatever. I, I mean, you have a really great job. It's still, you know, in that aspect, you were right. It is a mammalian thing. It's like, she didn't want to be judged as she could not bring it onto her job and do mm-hmm. it, do her job appropriately, you know, and lose her client and stuff. So,
1: Yeah. It kind of goes the other way too. Is also, I think if you can, if you can share something about yourself that's intimate, and not have it be affect the way you feel, and move boldly enough to where you don't, um, you don't care about what anyone else thinks about it, right. then it can be the opposite. It can be like a galvanizing experience. I think for me, it was that case, the case where, when you, I shared something that I hadn't shared before, but still did everything else I would always normally do became like a thing where like, wow, this is, this is impressive. It's impressive that you can do this because a lot of people, it it really is. It's incredibly difficult to share that stuff. And for me, that was the big part was that I'm a comedian. That's what I do for a living, but I'm not sharing this part of me because it's like, I'm scared that I will be taken seriously. Maybe. I think that's, that's the big fear is being taken seriously because I hate being taken seriously. I really do. I hate it.
0: Yeah. But you did it in such a way. I mean, it was so great. And I loved how you used the music. So tell us a little bit about how you got into reggae and how that helped you heal as well.
1: Uh, I just, I've always been a big music person ever since I was really little. And I started playing in a, a rock band in I think seventh grade. That's when I really got into music. Cause that was a thing where it was on my terms. It wasn't like a class where I was with the music teacher and yeah. stuff. It was with my friends and we were playing popular music. So we would meet up every weekend, have band practice, sometimes twice a weekend, and I got really, really into like alternative rock. And then I started getting to jazz, like really heavy into jazz in high school. All I cared about was like John Coltrane, Thelonious Monk, uh, that kind of stuff, like like Bob era, yeah. Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, everything like that. We would we would cover. We had a jazz trio. We'd play songs together. We'd do gigs. We play gigs in town and stuff. And uh, I just got really into you know, super into jazz, and then I went to college in Florida State, and I started DJing at the radio station there, the on-campus radio station, which is WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State, eighty-nine point seven FM. And that was an incredible experience because it opened me up to all kinds of new types of music I would never have heard before. And uh, I got really into like house music, and I bought turntables and started DJing, playing like techno records because I was into that too. The reggae thing came along just by because of uh, Trojan Records, which is this really famous record label in Jamaica. It's one of three big record labels. Maybe you could say even one of two, because there's Studio One and there's Trojan. Those are the two big, big labels that put out most of the uh, music in the 60s and 70s. And uh, Trojan put out these little three CD box sets, and I bought one of them based on a friend's recommendation, I just was like, this is nothing like, i never heard anything like this before. It wasn't like reggae you would think, when you think of reggae, it was before that. It was like from the late 60s, early 70s, before the stuff that, most of the reggae that we know, that internationally know, like Bob Marley and whatnot, used that stuff. That's like late 70s kind of stuff. This was very different. It sounded more soulful, more like R&B. And uh, I just became so interested in it because of the novelty of it, I think also, where these people are singing in English, but it seems like a totally different different world, almost like an alternate reality of sorts because it felt like, because I was really into a lot of R&B and soul music from the South, and it felt like an alternate reality to that because it was technically an alternate reality because Jamaicans for the longest time were huge fans of American music because they would pick it up on radio stations from New Orleans and Miami. I love that. When uh, we, when America started moving into rock and roll, Jamaicans didn't like rock music, and I've never been a. Once I got into soul and R and B, I, I was never really into rock music. I just didn't like it as much as R and B, and the Jamaicans didn't like rock music. So reggae essentially started by Jamaicans taking matters into their own hands and making their own music that they liked because the Americans weren't making any more music that they liked anymore. So they started making their own. So it's, it's, that's like the most abbreviated version of it. But the story of, of reggae or Jamaican music is so interesting because it's people who took matters into their own hands to create a form of art that they didn't have. They made it themselves, for themselves, and no one else. And that to me was like just so incredibly fascinating that... I just went down a rabbit hole for years and years and years and collecting I love that everything about it. And it's, I think for me, it wasn't so much healing as it was distracting. It distracted me from having to think about the fact that I just had this, had this problem with my bowels that was not uh, going away. It wasn't really responding to treatment. So it was like a, yeah, it was just really something that was seemed to be, have an endless source of novelty.
0: I love that. I, you know, even in Jamaican music too, because they created the brass drums. I had a Jamaican band. I, there was a while there where I was really into Jamaican music. Right. And I had a brass drum band. Yeah, steel drum, steel I drum. Got, the steel drums, yeah. yeah.
1: That's actually a little um, different. That's Trinidad. So that's more, oh, okay. It's, so oh. it's, it's, it's very close. You know, they're in the same region, but it's sort of, I mean, I'm not a historian for this by any means, but. I think you are. <laughs> well, just a little bit. I mean, but. Trinidad, that's, the steel drum is more from a Calypso root and technically Jamaican music, the Jamaican music that came before ska was Mento, that's the name of the traditional music in Jamaica, which some people claim is what gave rise to the traditional upbeat sound of of reggae music, but Mm -hmm. also it's, I don't know, it's almost, it's kind of murky, there's no no definitive answer, and one person will tell you one thing, one person will tell you the other thing. But it, they're definitely linked. Like Trinidad and still drums, it's a it's a similar thing, but it's definitely it's definitely a different a separate genre. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think you're right. They they were called a calypso band. I had hired. Yeah. Them. Had gotten married years ago. Stuff was great. But yeah, yeah. So really fun. Then we had gone to the Bahamas for our honeymoon. I remember back when I was married. So uh, it was kind of all a theme. What I really liked about your show also was how Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia, was such a a pivotal um, push for for you to do a show. I mean, she was for me too. I remember, I think it was called Something Drinking, right? Um, Wishful Drinking. Wishful Drinking. Right. I loved that show. I was like, oh my God, her show is great. I had done my one person show around that time. And I was like, oh my God, she's genius, you know, and how she went through her, her life, you Mm -hmm. know, and how tumultuous it was. I've had someone on the show, um, uh, on the podcast who, uh, lived with Carrie Fisher for a while. She met her in like AA. Yeah. And, and stuff. And so, um, she became very good friends with her and she kind of tells a little bit about that story, but yeah. So tell us your inspiration with that.
1: Well, I mean, I, I just like her a lot. And I like her attitude and her tone of her writing. And I saw her, I think it was Wishful wishful Drinking, the special. And yeah. just something stuck out to me HBO. a lot that she said yeah. something uh, to the effect of, if it's not funny, then it's just true. And I always think about that because we have so, much, so many things in our life that we try to be serious about. And if you're serious about something, then it's just... It's just true then. It's really, uh, it's not fun. Now I don't like things that are just true. I I would like everything to be funny because that makes it fun to be alive as opposed to just living in like, okay, so our house flooded. Um, this sucks. There's gotta be something funny about that. Well,
0: people just stay in a victim mentality with that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you bring a great point. You know, in my classes, I always try to teach about the hero's journey and to not mm-hmm. stay in that victim mentality because it's just, it's not fun. It's boring. And it's just like, um, nobody likes that story. It's devastating, you know? too.
1: It's devastating yeah, to the person. It's like
0: you're bringing me down. Now you're pulling me into your drama. I don't want to go there. But if you have an empowerment, like where you're the hero, even though the shit's happened to you, like in right. your uh, one person show, you can, you know, you can overcome certain things. And with humor, it's, it just makes it awesome.
1: Yeah, it becomes like rocket fuel for the, it becomes this thing where instead of it being a drag, it being an encumbrance, it becomes the opposite. And I think it's hard for a lot of us to see that, that we have, we're experiencing, uh, you know, a simulation It's just a game. It's just a, a weird, crazy thing we're plopped into. So why would we take anything and make it serious when you can laugh at the thing and make it uh, a source of, of fuel and a source of um, whatever, some source of a a good thing, essentially, by taking what has happened to you that you cannot change. You cannot change what's happened to you. So why not take that and use it for good as opposed to, to wallow in it?
0: I love that. And that is such a great point, you know, just to kind of shift that energy and to make it, a positive I mean and also how your brain works you get more dopamine going there you know and it it is a different effect and it shifts your life into something different I mean I'm sure you've had many shifts like you were kind of talking about in the beginning with your life like how has your life changed really since you've been doing the show
1: well the show I don't know I mean I um I don't know
0: or it's hard. Have it's, been talking about your story
1: you know i think it's hard to really say exactly because it's i'm looking at it from the inside out but i know that it's, it's just given me a lot of perspective and uh i've met a lot of people who i didn't know also are dealing with the same thing it's also made me realize significantly just how how lucky how grateful i am that i am not dealing with uh some constant issues with the i mean i'm dealing with stuff but not like in a way that's completely bringing me down. And I, I can't help but feel sometimes that a lot of people who are having uh, a lot of issues with their, their bowels, it's something where they have to find a way to almost forget about it in a way. I don't know how to say this other way, but sometimes you just have to be like, you got to just forget that you feel bad and do whatever you can to feel good because you're just gonna it's so easy to to uh just to, to always say no to things and just to always be to be have your mind on it because that's the thing with bowel disease that people don't talk about is most people who have severe bowel disease are very nervous people because they're always thinking about when where are they gonna go to the bathroom when they gonna have to go to the bathroom it's an issue of control you have you have this part of your body that everyone has control over you take they take it for granted you have you don't have control over it and so you seek to exercise control in your life in other ways and a lot of times those people are sort of what you call like a control freak because Mm -hmm. you're just trying to find something to have control over because this part of you that is so fundamental to who you are you don't have control over it and I think it goes back to the just the whole illusion of control we have in our lives in general the idea that we do have any control is absurd. And it, I, I think it's helped me to realize that that I have to uh just let go and chill out more with everything.
0: I think those are great points. I have a couple of stories regarding what you talked about. Number one, I was watching some woman on TikTok talk mm. about her husband and only fans. Okay. She had given them so much money, like she given him $20,000. She was going to buy a truck. He didn't buy the truck. He spent it on Only's fans in a year. They oh, were no. together for five years. So then she found out that in those five years, he had spent over a hundred thousand dollars on Only's fans. Oof. So she was livid as you can imagine, but she yeah. asked him, she's like, what is this? What is going on? And he says, I was trying to control the women.
1: Isn't that yeah. interesting? Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I think I lost so much stuff like that. It's just a, it's a, all kinds of addictions and things are just ways that control manifests in our lives, us trying to have some type of control over something pathologic, and you can't do it.
0: Right. It was so fascinating. And then another thing, which is interesting, so kids who have incooperosis, so that's the opposite. They're holding in their poop.
1: Oh, so I've heard about this. So
0: that yeah. they get very, very constipated. Their stool hardens. You know, yeah. who um a lot of times like if they it's very bad, not, yeah, laxatives may not work. You know, and they'll have to have a surgical disimpaction, oh. right? So, yeah. so and what'll happen is the stool will seep, you know, uh-huh. into their pants and stuff like that, and it's kind of more liquidy. And so, and a lot of times is that these poor kids they don't have any control. Um, in their home.
1: So they control you know? that. Yeah. So they can,
0: can control their poop, you mm-hmm. know, and when they, you know, defecate and stuff, which is all very interesting. And that in itself is psychological as well. So. Yeah.
1: So much of the stuff around it, surrounding the digestive system is psychological. I learned that a long time ago about how something like 70% of symptoms with bowel problems are due to stress and, uh, yeah. it comes from mental stuff, it comes from yeah. your brain. And you think about that. That's such a huge portion of it that it has to, it can't be ignored, but it is ignored a lot.
0: Yeah. And it's very true. I mean, they say our, our abdomen, um, our intestines are our second, second brain. brain. right? And, and, um, I just wrote, uh, a passage in my newsletter about Chinese medicine and how they say sometimes, Uh, you know, we we need to digest our stories because our stories can make us constipated. Our stories can make us sick, you know, Mm -hmm. can give us like liver problems and stuff. And it's just like working out your stories that are in your head as Mm -hmm. if you are digesting them. And that's kind of what you do with your show. You're kind of digesting everything that's happened to you with this Mm -hmm. journey and putting it out there you know and kind of getting it out
1: you know yeah that's it is. that is probably
0: why it came out so fast for you
1: oh yeah you because it just it was it was all there it was ready to go
0: it's ready to go right. you know kind of like when you got to take off your pants and you got to yeah. go so it was like the same thing exactly <laughs> right yeah so this has been such an interesting discussion what's going on like what's next for you
1: a uh, couple things, some projects that are uh, some film projects and stuff. Um, the, the show, I'm trying to do it in New York. I'm probably going to be doing it in New York for maybe a two week run in November. Uh, I'm awesome. not sure yet exactly. And I'm just talking about maybe taking it to, to Melbourne French Fest, and uh, we'll see. Um, the goal is obviously to, to have it be a special, uh, just I'm still I'm still, every time, even the last show I did, which was just a few weeks ago, I was finding new stuff then. So it's about yeah. just doing it a ton, really finding everything there is to be found and then um, doing it to death and taping it.
0: Awesome. I love it. I love it so much. So Johnny Pemberton, where can people find you?
1: You can find me, um, well, I'm at my house right now. I'm not gonna tell you where that is, but you can find me online. You Just Google my name and everything comes up. Johnny Pemberton. Awesome. Thank
0: you so much. Thank you for having me. It was very fun. fun. All right. Awesome. Okay. Did you laugh? Come on. You know that episode was funny. Thank you for listening to the Nurses and Hypochondriacs podcast. We'd love it if you left us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to know more about Rogue Nurse Media, the Nurses and Hypochondriacs podcast, and the Well-Written Nurse writing classes, you can go ahead and click on the link to join our newsletter at the end of the show notes. Go ahead and throw us some bucks. We'd love a donation. You can go ahead and donate on our Venmo site at Nurses Hypo and also the PayPal link at the end of the show notes.